Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. This morning we're going to be picking back up in Ephesians 4. This is part two of a two-part series that John Eric started last week on the equipping gifts in Ephesians 4. Uh, I will review a little bit of what John Eric said last week, but we're going to be moving forward um, and covering the rest of the passage. Before we do that, I want to open up with a little illustration. Uh, Do you recognize what I have on the screen right now? This is the food pyramid, yes. Okay, so you know when I was a kid... Growing up in school, we had the food pyramid. The food pyramid has changed quite a bit uh, in my lifetime, for sure. Um, remember when carbs were good, and then they were bad, and now I guess you need them? I don't know. I don't, I don't know how it works. But this is the f- most up-to-date food pyramid that I could find. The idea of the food pyramid, we'll do a little health class here for you, that the foundation of the pyramid is vegetables, salad, fruit, you know, like healthy stuff. This is foundational to a healthy diet. If you want to grow up to be big and strong and a mature boy or mature girl, you need to follow the food pyramid. So the foundation is vegetables and salad and fruit. Then there's grains and a whole meal and cereals. Then there's some proteins. And then there's, of course, the essential, you know, fats and oils that are necessary. And then at the top of the food pyramid is the fun stuff. That's the foods and drinks high in fat, sugar, and salt. And there's a little disclaimer in the top right. You probably can't read it from where you're sitting. But it says, you can have these a maximum of once or twice a week. Now, I know that no one lives by that. Well, maybe I guess a few people live by that. But I stood behind someone that ordered a coffee yesterday. A small coffee had 10 creamers and 20 sugars. (laughs) So that, (laughs) that... That's not even in the pyramid, guys. Um, So the food pyramid, the idea behind it is this is a balanced diet. This is what we teach little boys and little girls to base their diet on if they are going to grow up and be healthy and mature, right? Okay. There is a similar concept in Ephesians 4 that Jesus is teaching us through Paul about how the church is going, to be, is going to grow up to be healthy and mature. It is not a food pyramid. Rather, it is a series of gifts that the ascended Jesus gave to the church so that the church would be equipped, united in the faith, so that the church would be, would be mature, and so that the church would experience the fullness of Jesus. Okay, So we're, you can take the food pyramid thing, use that for your personal benefit at home, but we're going to look at Ephesians 4. Hey, this week we got new sanctuary Bibles. In front of some of you in your row, there are sanctuary Bibles. If you want to use one of those today, this passage is on page 152. Don't get used to me saying that. I'll probably forget next week, but this week it's on page 152. All right, so we're going to be in Ephesians 4. This is going to be three slides. I'm going to read through this and just kind of progressively work through it. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, it is referring to the book of 
Psalms. Psalm says, when, we, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, in quotes, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So really quickly before we move on. I don't know if you're confused because we're talking about descending and ascending like Jesus is on an escalator going up and down. When we talk about Jesus descending, to descend means to go down. We're talking about Jesus was in heaven in his incarnation, which is the technical term for that. He came to earth, took on the form of a man. Jesus was not a man who became God. Jesus is God who became a man. That's important. That makes Christianity different from other religions, okay? But Jesus descended to the earth. He was born a baby, lived a sinless life, was crucified, resurrected. And then what happened after he was resurrected? He ascended and went back to heaven. So when we're talking about the descending and ascending, we're talking about Jesus' incarnation and ascension. Okay, you following this so far? That's just a lot of words to say that idea. It's important to point out that at this point, though, it is the ascended Jesus. Uh, verse 9, we are talking about the ascended Jesus that gives gifts to people. Okay, this is not Jesus in his earthly ministry walking around on the earth. This is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's going to give a series of gifts to the church for its strengthening and equipping. And then verse 11 tells us what these gifts are. The ascended Jesus gave some as apostles and some as pastor, uh, sorry, some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We'll continue. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. So here we're talking about the body's health, right? See why I chose the food pyramid as the illustration? We're talking about the health of the, the body being the church. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Okay. So the ascended Jesus gave gifts. These five gifts are listed. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Before we get into what those five gifts are, I think it's important for us to answer the question, why did he give these gifts? What is the purpose of Jesus giving these gifts to the church? And it's pretty clear. He says it in a variety of ways, but it's for the church's health. Okay, uh, we start in verse 12. He gives them for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The idea here is that Jesus gives these five gifts so that the saints, that's us, are equipped for ministry. Jesus does not give apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists and teachers so that they do all the ministry. He gives those gifts so that they equip everybody to do the ministry, okay? Now, 
This does not mean that a church should have a pastor who does everything. The pastor's job is to train everybody else in how to do everything. I'm not saying for that for myself, of course, but every other pastor in the world. Okay, you understand? That's the idea of these gifts. They are to train and develop and equip people. In addition, it's for the building up or the edification or the strengthening of the body of Jesus, okay? Uh, this is the purpose that these gifts are given for. This is actually the thrust of this passage. The thrust of this passage is not those five gifts, which we will unpack more, uh, more of, but the thrust of the passage is the health, the maturity, and the unity of the church. If you've ever been frustrated or disappointed at the state of the church, I mean the big church, not just our little local church, but I mean the church in America or the church worldwide. If you've ever said, this is not measuring up, then I think you feel a little bit what Paul was thinking of here. He's saying, Jesus wants a mature, united, equipped church. So he gave these gifts as his method for us to be mature. For how long? Do we have these gifts, or for how long did Jesus give these gifts to the church? It says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So let me ask this. Has the church in general, not just our church, but the church, attained the unity of faith yet? It doesn't seem like it to me. Would you describe the church as a mature church? I wouldn't either. So that leads me to believe these gifts still are being given by Jesus until we attain maturity. I want to uh, draw your attention to this uh, slide here. This is from the book The Gospel of Healing by A.B. Simpson. I'm going to talk about A.B. Simpson a little bit later, but I just want to show you this. Referring to this passage, A.B. Simpson says, does not the Apostle Paul tell us that these gifts and ministries were bestowed, and then he goes on to quote Ephesians 4, till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Certainly the church has not yet reached that maturity, and if these gifts were needed then, then they are needed now. They are needed still. So the idea is that these gifts are given until the church reaches maturity, I don't feel like we've achieved that yet. Not here, not in America, not in the world. So we're going to need these gifts. If they needed them then, we're going to need them now. Now, uh, we've been talking about maturity and what maturity looks like, but first I want to take just a moment to talk about what immaturity, spiritual immaturity looks like. Verse 14 gives us a really clear picture what does spiritual immaturity look like? Uh, this is what spiritual immaturity looks like. Being children, being tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. That's what immaturity looks like. So let me break this down for a moment. Children. Jesus told us to have the faith of a child, but Paul says put away childish things. We want childlike faith, but not child, childish discipleship. Childlike faith means, God, if you said it, I believe it. I'm not going to argue. 
My, my kids are still at the point where if I say it, they generally believe it. Childlike faith is, if God says it, I believe it. But childishness is a different thing totally. Paul tells us to put off childish things in 1 Corinthians. We don't want to be childish. We also don't want to be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There have always been and always will be false teachings and false ideas that come at us from every direction. And when you get blown around by false teaching and blown around by trends, the, you know, trendy teachings or things that are uh, not rooted in scripture, that's a sign of immaturity. If you're constantly flip-flopping all the time and you're not rooted in the Bible, that's a sign of immaturity. Another sign of immaturity is that we are susceptible to the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Basically, are you spiritually gullible? Do you get the wool pulled over your eyes a lot? Do you lack discernment? You know, uh, maturity means having the ability to discern. Immaturity means that you're not able to discern. And discernment is an important piece in the life of every Christian. Because, and maybe now more than ever, you could just stumble into Bible teaching just about everywhere. But it's not all good. I can't tell you how many religious programming channels I have on my TV. You know, I mean, I could find... Some good stuff and some bad stuff, if I'm not discerning, I could easily get misled, right? Okay, so we had a guest speaker a few weeks ago, Kelvin Walker, who told us that one of the best ways to practice discernment is in community with other Christians who keep us from going off the deep end, and that's helpful. All right, so that's what immaturity looks like. Starting in verse 15, here's what maturity looks like, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects. I said that like a dad. Grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Maturity looks like growing up, and maturity looks like love. Speaking the truth in love, strengthening yourself in love, that's what maturity looks like. So the thrust of this passage is maturity. The thrust of this passage is the saints being equipped. But let's look at Jesus' method for how the saints are to be equipped and Jesus' method for uh, growing up. Uh, I know like my method for my kids to grow up is me yelling at them, grow up. <laughs> I'm still waiting for that to kick in. Truly, wouldn't my, method for their, wouldn't my method for their growing up be like a healthy, balanced diet? Right? It would be like, eat your fruits and veggies, eat a healthy diet, get outside, play, make friends. Like this is the, These are the types of things that I would direct my kids in if I want them to grow up to be mature, right? So what are the types of thing that Jesus, things that Jesus would direct the church in for the church to grow up? He gives these five gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, some would actually say this is four gifts. I'll explain that in a little bit. But you know how you count it is probably secondary. So I want to spend a little bit of time explaining what Paul means when he says apostles, and then uh, a little bit of time explaining what Paul means when he says pastors and teachers. Last week, 
John Eric explained prophets or prophetic ministry and evangelistic ministry. He did a great job with that. That sermon is on our website if you want to listen to that. Uh, I am limited in time, so I'm not going to rehash that, but that's what he preached on last week. <coughs> Today I will cover apostolic ministry, pastoral ministry, and teaching ministry. So really quick, apostolic ministry, this is probably the one that needs the most explanation this morning. So uh, I want to show you a quick diagram here. Okay. If I asked you to name the apostles in the New Testament, maybe you could name a few. But I've never, ever heard anyone start with Jesus. Even though Hebrews 3 says that Jesus is our capital A consummate apostle. I mean, Jesus is the prototypical apostle. And apostle Jesus, it sounds funny to even say it, doesn't it? But truly, Hebrews 3 says Jesus is our apostle. Uh, Jesus the apostle had an apostolic ministry. The word apostle means sent one. Anyone who is sent. Was Jesus sent? Yes, from heaven to earth. Uh, apostles in the New Testament usually established churches or did what we would say a modern-day missionary does, travel around and establish churches. Did Jesus establish a church? Yeah. Yep. So he's a sent one who established a church, crossing, we would even say crossing culture because he became a man, right? I mean, he, heaven and earth do not have the same culture yet. We hope someday that they do, but they do not yet. And so the original apostle is Jesus. Hebrews 3.1 says that. But Apostle Jesus appointed 12, or 13, apostles that we, we call them the 12 disciples, okay? If you f look at um, Mark 3 or Matthew 10 or Luke 6, you'll find lists of the 12 apostles. Now, just to give you something to think about during halftime of the Super Bowl tonight, uh, the list in Luke is one person different than the list in Matthew and Mark. So there's actually 13 names, I don't have an explanation for that other than to say maybe their understanding of apostles was a little looser than our understanding of apostles. But Jesus appointed 12 apostles, so I'm calling them the, the 12 apostles. But then beyond the 12 apostles are what we would call New Testament apostles. So, you know, Judas was an apostle, but Judas uh, betrayed Jesus, and Judas actually killed himself. In the apostles in the beginning of Acts, they said, we have to replace him. And they had two guys that they identified, and they chose Matthias to replace Judas as an apostle. And do you know how they chose Matthias? They went out to the back alley and slung some dice. <laughs> Clickety-clack. And that's how they chose Matthias. Yes, well, they cast lots. So I don't know if they literally rolled dice. Yahtzee, but... <laughs> They did not, they did it by casting lots. And uh, that's the only time they did that because it was very soon after that that the Holy Spirit was given to the church at Pentecost and there's no need to do that anymore. We don't need to draw straws or take guesses or cast lots because now the Holy Spirit has been given. But that's how Matthias was chosen. He was not directly appointed by Jesus the way the other 12 were. He was appointed by the apostles as they cast lots. And they would, of course, say, the casting of lots was God's way of 
telling us who we should choose. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, was not one of the 12 uh, apostles. He became an apostle after Jesus' ascension, which is why we say the ascended Christ gave apostles. Barnabas is referred to as, apostle, as an apostle in the New Testament. So are Silas and James and even Apollos. In fact, conservatively, I counted 20 apostles in the New Testament, and you can make an argument for about five more, possibly. But there's about 20 apostles in the New Testament that are explicitly referred to as apostles. It's not just the 12. It's not just Jesus. And so, listen, I'm not really interested today. In fact, I would, I would make a case against this. I have zero interest in us going around giving people titles today. Apostle so-and-so, prophet so-and-so. You know, I think I've made it clear we do not care about titles here. I don't even make you call me Pastor Jim because it would be Reverend Jim, first of all. <laughs> and most of you just call me Hey You anyway. <laughs> I do not care about titles. I do not care about formal church offices. This is what I care about. Did it happen in the Bible? Should it happen today? What, are, what were the ministries of the apostles? Should those continue? So the apostles had a variety of ministries. Some do not continue, some do continue. For instance, most of the New Testament is written by apostles. So writing of Scripture was an apostolic ministry partly because there are about five books that are not written by apostles. And about 20% of the apostles wrote Scripture. About 80% of them did not. But some apostles wrote some Scripture. That's done. That's not continuing. We don't have modern apostles that are writing a 67th book of the Bible. If someone comes to you and says, I'm apostle so-and-so, here's my book, kick them in the shins and run, okay? <laughs> do not trust them, do not follow them. They're false. They're a false teacher and a false apostle. But, so that, that ministry has stopped, the writing of Scripture. But the apostles also served in what we would call missions, that is a ministry that has continued. The apostles also established churches. That is a ministry that has continued. The apostles, some of them, oversaw entire networks of churches. That is a ministry that has continued. And we have actually made up names for folks that serve in those roles, like uh, missionary, church planter, district superintendent. We came up with titles uh, rather than use the title apostle, I think mostly to keep peace in church. Does that make sense? Okay, but a missionary, who does a missionary study? They study the apostles. Who, who do we study? We study the apostles. So certain ministries have ceased, others have continued. All right, uh, apostles are sent ones. The apostle Paul often referred to himself as a father. The way that he related to the churches that he had authority over was he would call him he would refer to the, himself as a father and he said to Timothy for instance Timothy you're my true son in the faith because Paul had no biological kids but he looked at Timothy as his son and he saw himself as father uh, I want to give you an example of what this would look like nowadays well kind of from the 18 and 1900s kind of nowadays uh, there was a man who I mentioned earlier named A.B. Simpson. Are you guys, oh gosh, here he goes about A.B. Simpson again. 
There's a man named A.B. Simpson in, I think it was 1867. He was in Chicago. He was 33 years old. He was a young pastor, and he was in Chicago, and he had a dream. He was sleeping. He had a dream. In the dream, he was sitting in an auditorium. The entire auditorium, all the seats were filled with Christians, but on the stage in the auditorium, he saw people of every nationality, every race, and they were wringing their hands in anguish and anxiety as if they were lost and in danger of hell. He woke up from that dream in a cold sweat and hit his knees immediately. He said, Lord, I will go. Like I'm, this, That was his missionary moment where he said he was going to go. And while he himself never spent long periods of time overseas, within 10 years... He moved to New York City. He established a cutting-edge missionary magazine that was unlike anything of its time. He started a school for the training of missionaries, uh, which was unique. He, he stole the model from a place in England and used it in New York City. Uh, he planted a church in New York City where he got these missionaries and sent them to school and trained them. He started a society called the Evangelical Missionary Alliance which was to get Christians from every denomination who wanted to fulfill the Great Commitment Commission and get them together and send missionaries to the most neglected places on earth. He did that in 10 years as a result of this dream. So here's what people have said about him in that role. Uh, this is A.E. Thompson who wrote A.B. Simpson's initial biography. He said, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, this is the passage we're talking about, Paul wrote to the Ephesians that when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts unto men. He gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints under the work of ministering under the building up of the body. That's the passage we're looking at today. Until the body, the church is complete, these gifts will continue. A.B. Simpson was an apostle. An apostle is a commissioner from the court of heaven. Such a man was A.B. Simpson. A former president of our denomination... Uh, Harry Schumann says this, the result of the work of Dr. A.B. Simpson as viewed 100 years after his birth gave him an honored place among modern apostles. The idea being that our movement that we belong to has acknowledged that this work has continued and that uh, a guy like Albert Benjamin Simpson carried on some of the ministries of the apostles, which is the establishing of churches, the sending of missionaries, the training of people, the oversight of churches. Not writing scripture, that's done. But some of these other ministries continue. Does that make sense? All right, now, I want to warn you, some people take this too far. Uh, I remember sitting in traffic on Torsdale Ave a few years ago behind a very nice car. And the license plate said, it was a, one of those personalized license plates, it said, Apostle one. And I was like, oh, you guy. <laughs> Listen, if, if you think that apostleship is somehow connected to nice suits and lots of money and a private jet and having your picture on the side of a church van, oh, you're screwing it up for everybody. And the, the, you know, the, the nice car at the personalized Apostle 1 license plate just grieved me so much because it's, 
It's exactly what Paul dealt with in 2 Corinthians when he was constantly confronting false apostles. Read 2 Corinthians. The whole book is Paul defending his apostleship. And this is how Paul defended himself. 2 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians 11 in particular. This is how Paul defended himself. He didn't say, of course I'm apostle, an apostle. Look at the size of my ministry. Have you seen my picture on the side of the van? You know, have you seen my snazzy suit? This is what Paul says. Of course I'm, a, I'm an apostle. Didn't you hear I've been arrested? I've been to prison. Didn't you know I was beat five times? I've been shipwrecked three times. The proof of his apostleship was not his success, it was his suffering. Here he is saying, I've paid a price for you. I've suffered to establish this. I've given up rights to money. He actually says, because he would raise his salary from other churches, he said, I had to steal from other churches so I could work for you. Of course, he wasn't stealing, but he's saying, I had to have them pay me to work for you. So his evidence of his apostleship is not, look how good I have it. It's look how much of a price I've paid. Look what I've suffered for. And there are still people, there are still Christians, there are still pastors all over the world that are going and suffering, putting their lives on the line, going to prison to establish churches. They're losing families, they're losing limbs, they're paying a price to establish the gospel. And I have a hard time believing that they aren't the continuation of this gift. Does that make sense? Now, I want to move on to pastors and teachers or pastoral ministry and teaching ministry. In uh, Ephesians 4, in the Greek construction of that passage, it actually sounds like it's pastor hyphen teacher, not pastor and teacher separately. So, you know, whether you hyphenate those or treat them separately, I don't really care. Uh, it does kind of seem like it's probably pastor hyphen teacher. Uh, Anthony Marita says it this All pastors teach, but not all teachers are pastors. I think that's about right. So pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry or pastors are shepherds that provide care and oversight. They nurture, defend, and protect. <coughs> the biblical metaphor for a pastor is just shepherd, meaning a, a person that takes care of sheep. That's the metaphor in the Bible. I say this because there is this disappointing, discouraging trend that Pastors are calling themselves CEOs or entrepreneurs or lead. I saw this yesterday, a guy that says lead pastor and CEO of such and such. And I thought, CEO? Find, give, please find that in the Bible. Entrepreneur, oh my goodness. Just If you want to be an entrepreneur, go start a business. If you want to care for people, start a church. And uh, there's, there's already a biblical metaphor. We don't need another one. We don't need to use business terms to relate to uh, kingdom realities and kingdom concepts. Does that make sense? People get upset when churches are run like businesses. So let's stop calling our leaders, well, we don't do this, but other places, CEOs, entrepreneurs, blah, 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 blah. I, I hate that. And I think you should hate it because you should feel the way I feel about everything. <laughs> in the New Testament, <coughs> in the New Testament, pastor and elder seems to be an interchangeable term. So 
Uh, what is a pastor? An elder. What is an elder but a pastor? We do it this way at True Vine. We have vocational pastors and we have vol- uh, volunteer pastors or vocational elders and volunteer elders. So for instance, John Eric and I, being an elder of a church is our vocation. It's what we do for a living. But we've had many great volunteer elders like Scott, John McManus, Glenn Miller, Shay Akinaso, and others who serve for a, you know, a limited period of time in a, in a more specialized role. Uh, and that's kind of how they did it in the New Testament too. Some got paid, some did it part-time, some did it full-time. But elder and pastor are essentially interchangeable terms. They mean the same thing. They are shepherds. The way that a pastor leads is by demonstrating care and tact. Pastors are very wise and tactful. I'm, now I realize I'm, I'm a pastor, so it sounds like I'm saying that about myself, but that's not what I mean to say. Pastors, people that carry out pastoral ministry are very tactful. How can we get the most people from point A to point B with them being fully engaged in the process? How can we communicate difficult concepts without unnecessarily offending people? Does that make sense? Because sometimes you, you say stuff and it's going to hurt, but it doesn't all have to hurt. You know, like you can say it in such a way, a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. Is that, that's probably what a pastor would think about this, right? So pastors are tactful. Uh, they're wise because their job is to love and lead and protect and care for the flock that God has entrusted to them. And pastors are necessary uh, because they help us move forward. Now, I wonder at times if churches have not gotten addicted to pastors and they can't stand evangelists or prophets. I mean, if you're a Christian, you want the pastor who's going to come and like teach you the Bible and visit you at home and do your wedding and counsel you. Give that person a raise, right? Okay, but the prophet, get him out of here. I don't even believe in that anymore. You know, like it's we've totally different attitudes about those things. The evangelist, the evangelist is not concerned primarily with the people in the church. The evangelist is concerned primarily with the people outside of the church that need to come into the church. And so it's a totally different approach to leadership. Teaching ministry. Teachers love to unpack the word. The teacher loves to systematically study scripture and not just study it, but then present it. This resonates with me. I love teaching. I love listening to it and doing it. Uh, The teacher, their solution to every problem is, we need a sermon series on that. You know, if you come and say, oh man, my wife and I or my spouse and I, we're really having a hard time. You're like, you know what? Just in two years, I'm going to do a sermon series on that. If you can wait on till then, that's going to fix everything. Or you come and say, I'm going through a really tough time. I don't know what to do. They're like, I know a book you can read. That's kind of how teachers do it. They're not exactly soft, careful, compassionate. It's all about, you know, well, you know, you know why you're depressed? Because you haven't memorized enough scripture. That's kind of the teacher's approach. But you know, we need the teachers because they're the ones that keep us grounded in the word. They're the primary, well, I don't know about primary, but they're one of the necessary 
tools that God uses to renew our minds, like it says in Romans 12, and to help us think differently. Now, all of these ministries, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, all of these are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the consummate apostle. Jesus is the consummate prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. There is no one who is more effective in these things than Jesus. And Jesus is continuing to do these things. We need to be empowered to fulfill uh, the call to maturity that Jesus has given us. And before I send you out and say, now grow up, I don't want to do that. I want to give you an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus where you're empowered, where you receive grace to empower you for something. So we look to communion as one of the ways that we do that here at Truvine. Uh, communion is something that people have looked to to receive strength and grace from the Lord for thousands of years. The way that we do true, uh, communion at Truvine is we have this bread, which is the body of Jesus, and we have a cup. We use grape juice out of deference for those that need to avoid wine. Uh, and the, the grape juice is the blood of Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come up right through the center aisle and participate in this. You can do that uh, when you're prepared. We're going to read in a moment from 1 Corinthians 11 that you should examine yourself. So please don't rush up here. This is also a meal that Jesus shared only with his disciples, not with the crowd. This is something that we offer to you if you are a disciple of Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, not sure what to make of Jesus, stay comfy in your seat. But if you're a disciple of Jesus who's taken time to examine yourself, I want to invite you up here. So the way we're going to do it is you'll come up, take a piece of bread, dip it in the, the uh, cup. Please don't drink from the cup. There's plenty of room up here if you want to spend some time at the altar praying, and uh, you can take time to do that. I'm going to ask, Scott's going to come up and play for us. Would you mind standing with me? We're going to read our communion declarations from 1 Corinthians 11. This is what we do every time that we observe communion. I'm going to lead us in reading this, but please read with me. We believe that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. I'm going to pray for us, and then when you are ready, please come up front and take communion. Jesus, we set aside these elements, which are originally common, but now they've been set aside and sanctified for a holy purpose. 
They are your body and your blood to us. And we expect, Jesus, we come with expectation to have an encounter with you as we walk in the, the footsteps of both biblical and church history. Would you meet us here at the communion table, Jesus? I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.